So have you ever wanted to be great at something? Like, have you ever had something where you just wanted to be better than everybody else, or that you thought you were going to be better than everybody else, and that people were going to know you for this thing, and that people were going to be talking about you for this thing, and that you thought you were just going to be better than everybody? Well, I've had multiple times in my life, especially when I was younger, I feel like I've kind of got a handle in, on it in my old age, but especially when I was younger, if, if, the minute I started to like develop a little bit of an interest in something, I'd immediately go to these places of like, what if I was the best at it? What if I was great at this thing? And let me tell you, it never panned out, but I'll give you an example of when this happened. Um, throughout my, still today, I, I really like music, and there was a small point, point in my life where I really wanted to learn how to play music, probably 18 or 19 years old, and so I really wanted to play music, really wanted to learn, and so I got a guitar and got some books and watched some videos and started to try and learn how to play guitar. And I don't know how many of you have ever played guitar before, but for those of you who haven't, guitar is impossible. It makes no sense. I, I struggled so hard. I don't know how these people up here do it. I don't know if it's like they're playing behind a track or what, but I, my brain and my fingers, like I tell them to do one thing, they do something completely different. It made no sense. I hated every second of it, so... I ditched the guitar. And, but I still wanted to play music. So what do you do if you can't play guitar, but you really want to play music? You play bass, right? And so I got a bass guitar. And let me tell you what, I was right. Bass was easier. It started to make a little bit of sense. And you know, I would, I would tell my finger to hit one string, and I would actually hit one instead of like four at a time. And it started to make a little bit of sense. And so I started to learn how to play a little bit. And I was never good, but it was just a fun hobby. Like I had other friends who played other instruments and we'd play in each other's basements and stuff, and it was just for fun. Well, I had this one buddy who was a drummer, still to this day, one of the best drummers I've known, who was in like, who was in a band, but who was in like a legitimate band, not just me and my buddies playing in our basement, but they would play places and people would show up to see them and actually like give money to see them. And so this was like legit band and I really liked them. And he approached me one day and said, hey, we have this show coming up in about a month, month and a half, and our bassist can't make it, but we really want to play. Would you be willing to come and practice with us and learn our stuff and play a show with us? And I started thinking, I'm going to be a rock star. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, this is, a, this is a band I really like, and I'd like them even if it wasn't my buddy, and they want me to play with them. And so I start going to all these places in my head of, I'm going to show up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do so good, they're going to kick the other guy out of the band and bring me in, obviously, and everyone's going to be leaving the show talking about the bassist, which let me tell you, no one's ever left the show talking about the bassist. It, the, the best you can do is not get noticed, and, but I was like, I was going to all these places, I'm going to be so good, I'm going to join the band and we're going to get big, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be a rock star, this is going to be so cool. And so I go and practice with them, and it becomes very apparent very quickly that they are in a completely different universe than I am talent-wise. I start to try and practice with them, and I'm getting nowhere. And to their credit, they were gracious with me. They were happy to stop and teach me things. We were progressing a little bit, but it was a real struggle. And I remember after one of the practices, the, the lead guitarist, he kind of pulled me aside as we were packing up, and he goes, hey, you know, just want to let you know. We just appreciate you trying. If this doesn't work out and you can't do the show, that's totally cool. I was like, oh, oh. I thought I was doing good, but I guess not. And so as we got closer and closer, it just all this started dawn on me of, dawning on me of, I'm going to actually have to play in front of people. I've never been on a stage before. No one other than like a couple of my buddies have even heard me play. And I was just struggling with the music. And so eventually I had to call my buddy and just tell him, look, if you will, the, the band will sound better with no bassist than with me. Go with nobody, and I promise you, you will sound better. And I had to back out. 
And right there, all of my rock star dreams were gone. All of my rock stars, I don't even think I really cared that much about music after that. It just like let all the air out. But for a moment, oh, I was gonna be great. I was gonna be so great and I was so excited for it. But have you ever had, that time, had those moments where you thought you were gonna be really great at something? And this is, the, this is the idea we're going to be talking about today, this idea of greatness. And this is the question we're going to be asking, and that's this. It's, what is greatness? What is greatness? What is greatness in, uh, when it comes to our faith? What is greatness in the eyes of the Lord? What does it mean to be great? Oh, hey, if I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm on staff here at New City. And today we're going to be continuing our look through the book of Mark. So if you've got a Bible with you, feel free to get it out and open up with us. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4. And... Um, what we're doing in the series is we're just going verse by verse through the book of Mark and seeing, uh, lo- looking a little bit at the, um, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and seeing what we can learn and apply to our lives today. And so this, um, uh, today we're jumping in right in the middle of chapter four. We started this chapter last week, and we're going to be continuing it this week. And what we're doing is we're jumping right in the middle of some teachings of Jesus, and we're looking at these parables that he's teaching. And he's using these parables as a way to uh, describe the kingdom of God. And so what he's doing, if, you, if you're unfamiliar, Dylan really uh, dove into what the parables mean and the reason he used parables last week, but if you're unfamiliar with Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, what he's doing is he's taking this really big idea that is the kingdom of God, that as humans, we can't really wrap our heads around, but he's taking it and kind of bringing it to a level that his uh, followers at the time could have at least come close to understanding. And so he's going to be using a lot of kind of farming imagery and things that they would have been familiar with. And it's a way to illustrate the kingdom of God and kind of make it come a little bit into their lives, this idea that would have been really hard for them to process. And so um, with that in mind, with that context in mind, we're going to be starting in verse 21 today, Mark chapter 4, verse 21. And it starts, this is Jesus continuing teaching from what we covered last week, and he continues today. And it says this, he says, uh, he also said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? Isn't it to be put on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. And so oil lamps at this time were obviously a way of seeing after dark. Clearly, they didn't have electricity. And what Jesus is saying is you don't get a lamp to hide it. A lamp has a specific purpose, and that is to shed light on something that is hidden. It's to reveal something that is in the darkness. And you don't get a lamp to not use it. That that defeats the purpose of it. And as I was reading this, this brought to mind kind of a specific example in my own life. Um, So at at my house, every night, basically every night when we go to bed, I'll leave a light on in the living room or the kitchen, basically in like the main area. And my wife, Brittany, she kind of asks me all the time, like, why do you leave a light on? This, we clearly, we pay for electricity, we're sleeping, nobody's out there, why are we wasting money on this? And she makes a good point, but I have a very specific reason of leaving a light on every night, and it... This might not sound the best way to put it, but it is her fault. All right, it is her fault. So I want to I bring you into our marriage a little bit, describe to you what's going on in the, in the Androsian household, and kind of shed some light on this situation. So my wife, Brittany, we've been, we've been married for over 10 years. We've been together for almost 20 years. We've been together for a long time. She's wonderful. I love her. She's great. But one thing you might not know about her is that she loves to scare people. She loves to scare people. Not in like a terrorize someone way, but like she likes to, the whole hiding behind a corner when you're coming around and then the whole, you know, ah, and just gets you with the, the, just gets you with that little jump scare. And she lives for these moments and does them all the time. Now, when I say all the time, you might be thinking, you know, it's cute sometimes. This is every day, sometimes multiple times a day. 
and she gets me 95% of the time. I know it's coming. Like, we'll get up to go to bed, and you know, maybe we'll see, be sitting on the couch, and I'll turn and go put something in the kitchen, or I'll turn around, and I'll turn back around, and all of a sudden, she'll just be gone. I'm like, I know it's coming, but somehow she's always behind the door I don't look. Like, I'll look over here, and she'll be over here. Or I'll turn this corner, and she'll be behind this corner. And every time, it's the, ah, and gets me every time. And even just a couple weeks ago, we, she did this uh, Zoom call for um, some of the leaders in New City Kids. And I was on it, but in a different room of the house, so we weren't huddled around the same screen. And she must have, as soon as the call was done, shut her laptop and run right outside my door because we finished up and I, I go out the door and she's already waiting for me outside the door and ugh, it gets me and I had water and I spilled my water and it gets me every time. But the reason I leave a light on is this all kind of culminated into, into like what I consider her most magnificent performance in this, this past winter. So this past winter, we lived, before we uh, moved into the house we're in now, we lived in a really small one-bedroom apartment. And so I would get up really early in the morning, but it was so small that I would leave all the lights off because I didn't want to wake up the family. And so I just had this kind of morning routine of every morning I would get up, 5.30, I would go, I'd use the bathroom, I'd go make my way, make a cup of coffee, sit down on the couch with a, with a book and a little book lamp. And I just got used to doing this all in the dark so that I wouldn't wake anybody up. Well, one morning, I get up, same thing as always, it's dark, I go, I go into the bathroom, I come out, See, Brittany's still laying in bed, go into the kitchen, make a cup of coffee, and as I round the corner into the kitchen, all of a sudden this, this like shadowy mass jumps out of the darkness and just, bah! and I lost it. I jumped so far back, I threw everything in my hands, I yelled, I fell completely on my back, and it was Brittany. She, she thought, she, what she did is when I was in the bathroom, she woke up, bunched up all the blankets on the bed so it looked like she was still in bed, <laughs> snuck out, laying down flat on the kitchen floor, and just waited and just waited until I came and she got me. And so I have to leave lights on to like prolong my light. And so like, so I don't have a heart attack, but this is, this is kind of what Jesus is saying. Kind of, I think you get, I think you get the, what I'm saying, but he's saying that Jesus in these parables are, are the reason that he's here is to shine light on something that was hidden, that you don't use a lamp to hide something. And this idea of the kingdom of God, which before Jesus came was kind of um, uh, this unknown idea or something that people wouldn't really know what it was about. And he's saying, I'm here to shed light on the situation. I'm here to bring light to something that was unknown before, that which is the kingdom of God. That I'm not here to obscure it. I'm not here to hide it, but I'm here to actually shed light on it. And that through Jesus, the kingdom of God is being revealed. And this is the first point I want us to see here today, and that's this. It's that experiencing God's kingdom starts with knowing Jesus. Experiencing God's kingdom starts with knowing and loving and following Jesus. This, this concept that regardless of how close you are with, with God, if, if, if you kind of believe God exists, this concept of the kingdom of God, I think everyone would agree they want to have some part in or want to experience in some capacity. And the way we experience it here on earth is by knowing and loving and having a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is what's bringing the kingdom of God to this earth. Experiencing Jesus' love is experiencing the kingdom of God. Then he goes on and continues teaching in verse 24. It says, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. By the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and more will be added to you. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So what Jesus is telling them is he's saying, pay attention to what I'm telling you. Pay attention to what I'm telling you. That our faith is an active faith. It's not a passive faith. And he's saying, don't just listen, but use the things that I'm teaching to you. Use the things that you're hearing from me. Don't just hear it and sit on it, 
but actually use the things that I'm teaching you. To the one who uses what I'm teaching, to him more will be given. But to those that don't listen, even what they have will be taken away. And we know this to be true because how do you, how do you grow in your relationship with Jesus? You know, you, you, don't, you don't necessarily grow closer to Jesus by sitting at home, reading books on, on theology, just reading and studying and learning more about Jesus. Well, it's nothing wrong. Well, obviously it's good to learn, but the way we grow closer to Jesus is by taking that knowledge, that love, that what we've experienced through him and giving it away to others. That that's how we grow closer to Jesus, not just in sitting and, and amassing knowledge, but keeping it all to ourselves. It's in using the things that we've known, using the things that we've learned and that we've experienced through him and giving it to other people, helping other people experience Jesus through us. And so Jesus is reminding them, listen to what I'm saying, hear what I'm saying, but then act on it. Don't just listen and remain still, but act on the things that I'm telling you. And then he continues in verse 26. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. He said, a man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the full grain on the head. And as soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest is come. So this parable goes, goes hand in hand with the parable of the sower that we covered last week. And what this parable is saying is that ultimately Jesus is the one that does the work in people's hearts, not you and me. That Jesus is the one that actually does the work in people's hearts, not you and I. And it's like planting a seed, if you've ever planted a seed before. You can plant a seed, you can water it, you can fertilize it, you can move it around to make sure it gets the right amount of sun, right amount of shade, you can get, go to the store and get chemicals to try and force it to grow. But at the end of the day, it's not you or I that's breaking the seed open and causing this plant to grow. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that we have a role to play here, but Jesus is the one who ultimately does the work in people's hearts, not you and I. And I think of it like this. At our house, I like, to, I like to garden. I'm extremely mediocre at it, but I like to garden. I think it's fun. And so this year, we moved into a new house, and um, they had a couple of garden beds in there. So throughout this season, we're coming to the end of the growing season now, but we planted all kinds of stuff. We planted tomatoes and peppers and peas and pumpkins and sweet potatoes, all kinds of stuff. I don't even remember. And at the end of the day, looking back on the season, I give my season a C, maybe a C minus, is fine. Some stuff grew. We got some stuff. Some stuff didn't grow at all. Uh, some stuff did okay. Some stuff never even came out of the ground. All in all, it was fine. Not a big deal. I'm not a farmer. It's not my livelihood, but it was okay. But I was out there all the time trying to force things to grow, trying to do whatever I could, trying to make sure we plant things in the right spot. And at the end of the day, it's fine. But we have, this, we have this plant in our yard that when we moved in, we moved in about March. When we moved in, it was just a, like a bundle of sticks. And we had no clue what it was. It was about, probably about as tall as me. And it just looked like a bunch of bare sticks sticking out of the ground. And we had no clue, is this thing alive? Is it dead? Is it a plant? Is it a tree? Is it sticks? I don't even know. We had no clue what it was. And so we were going to cut it down, but we decided let's just wait and see what happens, if anything comes of it. And as the season progressed, it started to get some leaves on it. I'm like, okay, it's not dead. It's something. Then it started to get some flowers on it. And then we got a late frost and it all died. I'm like, Okay. Uh, that's that. So no, nothing came of it. But then leaves started coming back and it started growing some more and some more. And then it started getting these little green balls all over it. And we're out there looking at it all the time like, what in the world is this thing? Are these fruit? Are they nuts? Are they going to be flowers? Like we had no clue what this thing was. And it kept growing, kept growing. And these things started to take shape. And I remember one day we we're out there and, and, and Brittany was looking at it and she goes, is that a fig? 
It is a fig. We have a fig tree? Like, I didn't, fig tree, and we don't have fig trees up north. Fig tree is like the kind of thing you read about in the Bible. I didn't think people actually grew figs. Like, and so we're like, we have a fig tree. How do you care for a fig tree? I have no idea. So we just let it sit and let it go. And here we are at the end of the season. And ever since probably mid-August to even just this past weekend, we've been getting nonstop figs from this thing. Like, nonstop. We have, we have bags of them frozen in the freezer. We've used them to make jam. We've eaten them. They just keep coming even to, to this day. But you know what we did to make that happen? We did literally nothing. Literally nothing. I don't even think I ever watered it. But this other thing's that, man, I wanted to force it to grow. I did all the work for it. I wanted to make it work. Eh, it did fine. Not really that good. But this one thing that we had nothing to do with has grown and given fruit, and it has, no, honestly, no sign of stopping. It's just continuing to grow and continuing to produce. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that as believers, it's our responsibility to share the gospel. It's our responsibility to plant the seed, so to speak. But that we're not the one who ultimately does the work in someone's heart. That Jesus is the one who actually does the work in people's hearts. It's Jesus that makes the seed grow, not you and I. And this is kind of, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, good news, bad news kind of thing, depending on how you look at it. Because the, the fact of the matter is, is that you and I have zero power to produce belief in somebody else. Like parents, I'm a parent. We have zero power to create belief in our children. As much as I want to, I cannot create belief in my son. Now, it doesn't mean that we, have, that we can't help foster the situation. That doesn't mean that we can't help create environments where it's possible. And that also doesn't mean that God can't use you and I. But at the, at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who actually does the work in people's hearts. He's the one who helps create belief and helps, uh, does the work in people's lives more so than you and I. See, this doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. This doesn't mean that we, that we um, can just sit back and say, you know, kick our feet up and God's got it. All I got to do is sit here. If God's going to grow the seed, then I got nothing to do here. In fact, it means the exact opposite. And I think one of the most important roles that you and I have to play as followers of Jesus comes in how we treat people, comes in how we act towards people. See, how do you show someone you're a follower of Jesus? How do you, how do you show you're a follower of God? I think we can get that answer in the book of John. When you look at a couple of verses in the book of John, these verses will be up on the screen. But John is just a couple um, books past Mark, and it's another one of the Gospels and another one of the kind of recordings of Jesus' uh, life and teachings. And this is Jesus speaking, Jesus teaching, and he says this in John chapter 13. He says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So how do people know if you're a follower of Jesus? It's based on how you love them. Based on how you love them. That love is the mark of a follower of Jesus. Simple as that. Now, this doesn't mean, what this doesn't mean is that there's, we never have any responsibility to share the gospel. That if we just sit back and say, if I'm nice to people, my job is done. God will do the rest. All I got to do is smile at people and then they'll feel my love and then that's all that needs to be done. But what I will say is that if we're sharing the gospel with somebody, if you're talking to somebody about Jesus and it's coming from a place of anything other than love, I think we're probably doing more harm than good. And what I mean by that is if you're talking to somebody about Jesus and it's coming from a place of spite, coming from a place of, I'm going to show them I'm right and they're wrong, coming from a place of, look at all this evidence I've compiled and I'm going to get them, I'm going to show them why my uh, belief system is right and their belief system is wrong, I think we're probably doing more harm than good. But if we're telling someone about Jesus and it's coming from a place of love, coming from a place of, I actually care that you meet Jesus and caring about the person and wanting them to experience Jesus like you have, then this is how we share the gospel. This is how we show that we love and follow Jesus. 
And this is what I want us to see here. This is the point I want us to see here. It's that love reveals our faithfulness. That love reveals our faithfulness. How do we show that we're a follower of Jesus? I think we can, we can uh, show that based on how we love people. In loving others, we're fulfilling our role in God's kingdom. In loving others, we're showing people what we've experienced through Jesus and showing it to them. But life change, heart change, happens because of Jesus, not because of you and I. We can absolutely be used by God. God can use us as instruments to help create life change, but the life change actually happens because of Jesus' power, because of Jesus' greatness, not because of yours or mine. If we look back in the book of Mark, he's going to continue teaching. If we look in Mark chapter, if we look in Mark 4, starting in verse 30, as we kind of finish out this section, Jesus continues teaching and he says this. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil, it's the smallest of all seeds on the ground. And when sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants and produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. So in Jewish thinking, this idea of a mustard seed, it, it was thought of as the smallest seed. It may not have literally been the smallest seed they had access to, but it was, it was, it was a, a, a common metaphor, a common way of describing something extremely small. And what he's saying is this parallels the kingdom of God. That, that what he's saying is this is, another, this is an illustration of kind of the, the upside-downness of God's kingdom. See, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't, came, he didn't come in glory. He didn't come in uh, power. He didn't come as a king. He didn't come as something that everyone would know and respect just from the get-go. But he came as a seemingly insignificant person. He came in lowliness. He came in insignificance. But in doing so, he brought salvation to the entire earth. He brought the kingdom of God to us. That Jesus didn't come to this earth in greatness, but he came in lowliness. And this is what I want us to see here. It's that if we want to live for Christ, we have to live like Christ. If we want to live for Christ, we have to live like Christ. And, and, and especially looking at this, these examples and, and this kind of uh, portion of Jesus' life, what does it actually mean to live like Christ? We want to live for Christ. We got to live like Christ. I think we'd agree. But what does that actually mean? How do we live like Christ? What it means is that we can't apply earthly principles to live like Jesus. We can't take kind of, kind of uh, worldly advice that we get and assume that's what's going to bring us closer to Jesus. Because what are we taught? What are some common things that we're taught? Hey, you need to be a leader. You need to, people need to look up to you. People need to respect you. People need to know you're in control. But the kingdom of God says that the way to reign is to submit. And you need to be the best you can be. You need to be the best. You need to be better than everybody else. People need to see that you're better than everybody else. But the kingdom of God says that the way to glory is through lowliness. And you need to find your unique purpose in life. What were you put on this earth for? You need to find what makes you different. What, what makes you unique? But the kingdom of God says that the way to find your purpose is to die to yourself. So how do we live like Jesus? What does it mean to live like Jesus? I think we can find that answer if we look at another one of the Gospels in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is the book right before Mark, another one of the recordings of Jesus' life and teachings. And it says this in Matthew chapter 20. It'll be up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, live and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So what does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to be a servant? I'll give you a couple of thoughts. It means, it means to not consider yourself above others. To not consider yourself as more important than others. To consider others as more important than yourself. It means to not be prideful. It means to not take pride in, in what you own and what you've done and who you are. It means to be humble and not prideful. It means, it means caring rather than criticizing. It means if you see someone that's struggling with something, it's caring about what you can do to help them, caring about the situation they're in, rather than talking about it behind their back, rather than criticizing the position that they're in. It means prioritizing serving others over serving yourself. Caring about the needs of others, looking at what other people need, and seeing that as more important than just taking care of yourself. See, the fact of the matter is that God never asked you to be great. God never asked me to be great. God never asked us to be great, but he asked us to be faithful. And this is the main idea I want us to walk away with today, and that's this. It's that God wants your faithfulness, not your greatness. That God wants your faithfulness, not your greatness. That greatness, so to speak, in the kingdom of God is not achieved through greatness, but it's achieved through quiet faithfulness. Not faithfulness that's only, that only occurs when people are watching, that only occurs when you have something to gain from it, when you're influencing somebody else, when someone can look at you and say, oh, that's a good Christian. But it's faithfulness in the times when no one's around, in the quiet, in the unseen moments that's only between you and God. So the question is, what small things is God asking you to be faithful in today? Or to put it another way, what are your mustard seed moments? What are your mustard seed moments? What are those times in your life where they seem insignificant? They don't seem like it's any big deal. What are those moments in your life that God's asking you to be faithful in? Because here's the fact of the matter. If we can't be faithful in the small times, we're never going to be faithful in the big times. If we can't be faithful in the easy times, we're never going to be faithful in the difficult times. If we can't be faithful when we're by ourselves, we're never going to be faithful when the eyes are on us. If we can't be faithful when it's easy, we'll never be faithful when it's tough. See, I asked at the beginning of this message, what is greatness? What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be great in the eyes of the Lord? What does greatness mean when it comes to our faith? I think that greatness is the faithfulness that nobody sees. That greatness is faithfulness, not just because somebody's watching. Obviously, when people are watching, you still want to be faithful, but it's faithfulness when nobody's around, when no one will really know if you are or aren't other than you and God. It's the faithfulness that nobody sees. See, greatness, I think, is the, is, the, is the mom and dad that prioritizes their kid's faith. That d- does it not in a way to let everyone know, not in a way that they post on social media every time they teach their kids about the Bible, but it's, it's faithfulness. It's, it's, it's showing their kids what it means to be a follower of Jesus, even though it's not public and not um, exciting for everyone to see, and even when it's difficult. I think faithfulness can be the, 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 the single person, the unmarried person who despite pressure from everybody else, is trying to remain faithful in their singleness, despite everyone telling them to do something else. I think faithfulness is the person that quietly, quietly finds ways to serve others that nobody hears about, that, that sees a need and, and wants to make sure they can meet it with their time, with the resources, with, the, with what they have, but does it in a way that nobody else knows that they're the one that's meeting that need. You know, it's funny, in, in, the, in the four, four and a half years that we've been at church here at New City, We've been, I've been fortunate enough to see some of that, some of the most um, generous, some of the most faithful people with their time and with their resources and with their money um, that I've ever met in my entire life go to this church. 
And a lot of them are sitting right here in this room, and I bet most of you would not have any idea who these people are. Because in my experience, some of the most faithful and generous people are the ones who want the least amount of credit for it. Are the ones that if they see a need, they meet it, but they meet it behind the scenes. They meet it not when people are watching, not just when the church is doing a big push forward or when, when everyone can see what they're doing, but they meet it in quiet ways and say, hey, I don't want the credit for this. This is faithfulness. This is greatness. See, faithful, I'm sorry, greatness is faithfulness that nobody sees. God wants your faithfulness, not your greatness. And I think we can see this as a, as hopefully we can see this as a little bit of a relief. That God didn't ask us to be great. He didn't say that, you know, Jesus came to this earth. Jesus was obviously the, the epitome of greatness. He didn't say, you need to be great, but what I need you to do is I need you to be faithful. I need you to be faithful in the quiet moments, in the everyday moments, in the moments that aren't seen by everybody else. And in this, we can be faithful. And in this, we can experience God's faithfulness and God's greatness over our own. Let's pray together.